Hey everyone, Craig Rowe here. For some, real success is not defined by the money you make, but by the life you actually lead. So, this podcast explores the common human experience, those stories and journeys that many take on their pursuit of happiness and fulfillment. Some use their passion to overcome adversity, while others may use it to educate the world about their cause. And for those among us game enough, you may even turn your passion into a business. Each week, I sit and chat with those who have taken their interest beyond the realm of hobby and into the realm of cause or obsession. These positive, highly motivated and inspirational entities I like to call people with a passion. Me, having been in public health, I have a better insight, but most folks don't have any idea that public health all over responds to things. And I mentioned like tuberculosis, whooping cough outbreaks, like all the time. The good thing is most folks don't know because it, it's kind of like this. It's kind of freaky to know what diseases are, are in your backyard. G'day, everyone. Craig from People With A Passion, and I appreciate you being here, and I hope you're safe and well given the current crisis. If you haven't yet supported the channel, then please take a moment to hit the subscribe button to help uh, people like me who create content. Uh, the easiest way you can do that is by subscribing and also liking and or commenting on the video. If you haven't yet uh, hit the notification bell, do that as well, because uh, that'll advise you when new People With A Passion interviews are actually uploaded. Today's guest is the host of the People Process Progress uh, podcast. Kevin Pennell is his name, and he works in crisis management, emergency response, and incident uh, response. And he's going to be giving us a perspective across organizational uh, business and individual perspectives around mitigating against the current risks in the current crisis. So I hope you grab yourself a drink or something, sit down, relax and watch and or listen to this episode of People With A Passion with Kevin Pennell. Today's episode is brought to you by Applaudable.net. Thanks for joining us on the show, Kevin Pennell. I really appreciate your time and your experience that you're going to share with us today around emergency project management and also what you're currently doing in the IT project management space with health as well. So thanks for joining us on People With A Passion. Absolutely. Thanks, Greg. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, I'm definitely passionate about, you know, process and being bringing people together and, and you know, with uh, my background in military medicine and, and emergency management, public health in particular, uh, it's, it's a great opportunity, I think, for us to talk about that a bit. Give us a little bit of your background because you've had some military experience and you also have... Uh, and currently work in a space where you are in a health environment and uh, they're, they're not exactly the same but they both are still project management but let's talk about your naval history first and what your role was and how that may relate to what's going on right now. Sure. I was a hospital corpsman in the U.S. Navy uh, for almost six years. And so um, the cool thing about being in, in the Navy and a corpsman and I was worked in critical care is your uh, kind of scope of practice under Department of Defense is pretty high and for corpsmen in particular. Um, so I got to do a lot of things in the critical care area uh, from starting IVs to reading 12 lead EKGs, very, you know, hands on a lot of the stuff that are, you know, hardworking folks out in the hospitals all over are doing now. Um, and I was on the assigned and, and went across the Atlantic actually uh, on the Comfort, the ship that's in New York right now. Um, and so that background for sure gives me an appreciation for, you know, that's where I got my really heavy medical experience, um, you know, night shift, day shift, all the different things. And, and my first touch into event management or event support, really, because I was really an operations person, um, part of a bigger plan that I didn't realize then down the road, you know, as I got more experience, I would um, kind of learn that. But, you know, supporting big events like, you know, NATO's 50th anniversary and being able to stage in the Capitol in case, you know, someone got hurt or sick. And, and so that was a, a good opportunity. And again, kind of the peak of my skill set with, you know, advanced cardiac life support and things like that. So uh, it's also, again, really neat to see the comfort on a new mission with this pandemic that we have now in, in New York and, and kind of picturing me from, you know, mopping or swabbing the deck through actually doing patient care on the same ship and, and thinking about what they're going through now. That experience on that ship, you would certainly, like you say, be able to relate to those individuals that are in a crisis right now. Like when we say all hands on deck is a cliche, 
But right. what would their day be entailing right now? What is what is going on on that ship? Um, for sure, all hands on deck for when, you know, from when you get the order or before uh, to get the ship ready, literally cleaning it, getting all the, you know, the equipment ready, staging it, getting ready to sail, um, you know, as they say, to briefing in your groups, you know, for I worked in casualty receiving, which was like the ER on the ship. Um, I worked in the intensive care unit at Bethesda Naval Hospital, but on the ship, I was primarily in that casualty receiving. So, uh, getting your teams that work in kind of the pods or like the ER spaces and, okay, let's walk through a code or a sick person comes in or what, especially now, what personal protective equipment, you know, do we need to have ready? What level do we wear depending on the patient? So you're really pre-planning scenarios for different types of medical patients or different screening scenarios. And it looks like I was actually just looking at um, some of the videos, which is the Navy's doing great. They're pushing out, you know, experience on the Mercy. That's the Comfort Sistership and the Comfort. And you can get some insight. But seeing the same kind of area, it's very military looking. But um, the all hands for sure when you have a it's a very well rehearsed, whether it's uh, a pretty stable patient that comes in or a very sick, unstable patient that people know their role ahead of time. The all hands is, you know, who's going to start the IV, who's going to get the catheter, who's going to get the supplies, who's going to record. And so it's a it's a microcosm of the bigger team in ev with every single patient. And then you multiply that by the you know hundreds of patients that, that they're, you know, either have or are going to get it just over and over again the ships are there to actually support in in that role normally obviously war but this is a war footing as far right. as as far as you know the invisible enemy that people are talking of so um you in, said that you're no longer in the military but you have had interactions with some of those on the ground from your uh, that are colleagues that you've worked with and you have worked in a project management role in that uh, emergency health environment so even though you're not being paid to consult there are is a bit of back and forth and you still have a little bit of input into what your opinion on some of what's happening is you have a strategy around um, management called the smart strategy do you want to explain what that is Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, after the Navy, um, I got into IT management and down the road a little bit, got into public health emergency management and then on an incident management team. And you learn all these different principles. And so I became what's called a planning section chief, which means, you know, I'm the I'm like a project manager where you can you could drop me with the team and I can facilitate a process with anyone, whether it's a big fire um, or it's a building or it's a pandemic. You know, for me, being the public health guy that got into emergency management. A whole, or, or incident management, um, you know, I, I definitely latched onto the process. And so for, between that and, and looking at then the project management side, and again, the, the all hazards incident management planning section chief is very similar to like a, an, a project manager, whether it's construction or information technology or anything, because we're, we're kind of keepers of the process. We help people communicate, we facilitate, but we don't really own stuff. You know, we're there to support the operations, people that are doing the work on the ground or in the office or, you know, wherever it is. And so taking all these different methodologies and folks can look up the incident command system and there's tons of resources just, you know, Googling or something like that or even and same thing, project management. There's just so much stuff out there. And from, you know, getting my project management professional credential and then getting credential in incident management, distilling down. And some of this was from great mentors I had where. They, you know, we were told there's these big three that can help solve any problem. So if you're if you're in a bind, it's just, you know, it's just going nuts is is focus on your those smart objectives that you mentioned, those specific, measurable, achievable, realistic and time oriented. And the neat thing is the smart objective concept goes across so many different industries, but it's also so helpful um, because if you can from the start of a new project or a pandemic or a small outbreak, and that was a thing from public health is we would use this whether it was like a, a small tuberculosis case in a nursing home, but that's how everything starts. It starts and ends locally. So if you use it on small things, then when things get bigger, it's just a matter of scale. So these foundational four concepts. So the first one, smart objectives, right, is let's figure out how we're all, what we're all gonna work towards. And a super simple way to do that is, hey everybody, let's, what are the issues? Let's throw them on a whiteboard, put them on sticky notes, do whatever, put them together, get rid of the duplicates, and then kind of put them together and, and the overarching when I was in public health kind of objective was I had to help support my colleagues in public health to get them ready, train them to be able to provide 
a uh, 10-day supply of antibiotics to over 300,000 people within 48 hours. So that was always the the objective. And then, of course, there's more actionable ones. Um, so if you have things like that, then and you're practicing it by giving flu shots every year, which isn't quite as emergent, you know, but you know makes a difference too. Or just handing out M&Ms just to go through the process. Um, you still want to have everybody looking at objectives, and at every level, everyone knows what they are. And so the first thing is let's get everybody together, get some objectives, project team, incident management team, whatever. And then the second thing is uh, an org chart, right? And and I'm a pretty visual person, and a lot of folks are. And, and if I explained these 20 people are doing these things without a visual, it's kind of hard to keep track of that. So very quickly, just boxes and lines together. I mean, really, literally an org chart. Okay, who's doing what? Who's in charge? Who's doing planning? Who's doing logistics? Um, so here's our objectives. Build the org chart, particularly what we call the operations section, or just like any other company, just operations. Who's doing the work? Someone from from that operations section that you know is in the know needs to tell me what the plan's going to be. And that's that's one thing I found, too, is it's whether you're a planning section chief or project managers, a lot of folks look to you to make the plan but that's not really what we should do. We should facilitate the experts making the plan. And so by helping, you know, having the, the leadership help us define the objectives and then the operations folks, the experts telling us what the meat of the plan should be, we can help with a lot of the other stuff. And so that second of the foundation four of getting, okay, what, what org chart does this look like? And then we'll work through kind of who's doing specifically what things, but if we can just get that going, then, you know, everybody has an idea of, of who's doing what job and it, it cuts down on, you know, the silos or cylinders of excellence, as, as we've called them, um, duplicate work. Um, it also is a challenge sometimes because, you know, one thing, whether it's project incident management is egos, right? Who wants to be in charge? Who should be in charge? You get into that, but, but you work it out. Fortunately, practically, sometimes just by having those uncomfortable conversations you have to push through. Um, and, and this is a great example, right? This pandemic, so traditionally response is police, fire, EMS, you know, military stuff doing things and public health isn't typically seen as responders at all. Um, me having been in public health, I have a better insight, but most folks don't have any idea that public health all over responds to things. And I mentioned like tuberculosis, whooping cough outbreaks, like all the time. The good thing is most folks don't know because it, it's kind of like this. It's kind of freaky to know what diseases are in your backyard. Um, but again, it's good to know. So for something like this, I would look to people's org charts toward their objectives to be chock full of public health people. And, and that has been, unfortunately, I've had great colleagues along the way to, you know, partner with in police and fire and EMS and um, with with me and public health really get into it and us helping kind of say, hey, we all have a seat at the table. So let's all build this operation section. So for, you know, for now. Um, you know, who should be in charge of a disease investigation is like an epidemiologist, not a firefighter, mm. right? And, and that's hard to get past a lot of times because fire and police are so response driven and rightfully so, because I mean, gosh, they do awesome stuff. And, um, and you know, and I, I have a fire background as well. So it, it's, it, it's interesting to decouple that and go, okay, but, but the, you can't put more water on a disease. You can't get more security with guns. It doesn't do anything. Um, and I'm finding a lot of folks struggle with that because because they haven't practiced. They haven't gotten together and said, hey, for this exercise or for real, let's get some objectives. Let's pull the org chart together. And then, you know, the, the third of the foundation of four, let's coordinate resources together, like which really is, you know, a fancy ish way of saying just share our stuff. You know, you know? Yeah. so if we're going to ask for it, let's ask for it early. Often let's have good you know, resource coordination together. Um, through the logistics section or whatever your project team decides. But, you know, so if we're, we're getting our objectives, we've got our org chart, we know who's who, we know how we're going to order stuff and coordinate it and what people or equipment or supplies we need. Um, then the fourth thing to me that, that I kind of added on from what we've do is, is critical and it's on every plan. It's also on every after action plan. That's communication. You know, so you, you can't do the other three things well if you're not communicating. Um, and that's face to face, that's on the phone, that's text, that's whatever modality. Obviously, the, you know, talking about those difficult conversations you have to have when you work a process, um, you know, the face to face is, is by far the best. But like right now, we found, you know, face to face is not the greatest way to do that unless you're on the streets or in a hospital or somewhere like that. But um, so even through Zoom or Skype or messaging or picking up the phone, you can still be direct. 
Um, so yeah, I, I found from, from both my failures, from team failures I was on, from great successes that, you know, if you can, one, get your objectives, put an org chart together pretty quickly, um, coordinate your resources and communicate, the act of just doing those things fills in a ton of other gaps. Um, and you'll, you know, whatever forms you choose to use or, you know, how you document will find its way there. Uh, and that's another kind of pitfall some folks get into is they start to fill out a whole bunch of forms, but they haven't had the conversations. So they have plans that look really great when you look at the piece of paper, but there's really nothing behind them. And so, again, those four things, I think, um, help people get started. And, and there's a lot more, you know, detail to, to work through there, but that's kind of the whole, the whole concept. That's interesting around the paperwork side of things because that's where things tend to get bottlenecked when people start to put pen to paper and think and, and the just to get an action to occur so right. <laughs> so that that becomes like uh, you know if it's not signed or ticked and there's lives on the line you don't have time to go through every piece of paper so yeah that stuff should be secondary another thing that's interesting that you sort of uh, said there was around experts and making sure that the smartest guy in the room is the guy that is the guy responsible for that particular role? Because I see at right. the moment with social media, a lot of people are sharing a lot of information on social media and they're sharing their family and friends' opinions and they're not listening to the opinions of experts. And And some of the stuff I've seen and even comments that I've seen made, um, I just say to people, look, I didn't study six, seven, eight years at university to become you know, immunologist or what is epidemiologist? Epidemiologist. Yeah, so that, see, even I can't even say the word. So, <laughs> so I'm not going to give any advice on stuff I don't know and not pretend to know something I don't know. And, and that's the, that's the problem I think with this in this situation we're in right now is we're all leaning on certain individuals to provide us advice. But at the end of the day, for some, Life and death in any situation, not just this one, relies on the advice that you do get from those experts. And if you're listening to the wrong expert or someone who lacks experience, you may receive the wrong advice. So that comes back to the communication side of things. Now, this people might say, oh, why are we talking about, you know, the crisis and your history? But this is a bit more for you. It is a passion because you've established a podcast, which up on the top left, I think it'll be on everyone's screens. Yes, is the name of your podcast, which is uh, what is it? People process progress. Progress. Yeah, I said that correctly. I'm trying to work yeah. out the angles. So, do you want to explain what you're doing with that podcast and why those three words? What that is all about for you? Absolutely. Um, so. When I worked my way up in the incident management world, uh, became an instructor, you know, kind of a mentor on the team. And I love teaching. I love it. I love it um, mostly not just to hear myself talk, but more when you get to a point in hard training. And that's a good thing about incident management in particular um, is you the training you go through, you go, you take classes like other stuff and you have to sit there through PowerPoint slides and other things. But you also have to do and then you can take all the classes you want. But to get credentialed, you have to be mentored by someone else that's credentialed. So I had to work under or with a planning section chief that already had what's called a task book signed off. And so they watch me in real things or in exercises or both. You, you have to do them for real. So it, it's pretty legit process. It's great. And so, you know, once that happened, I could then start to teach and share experience. And you see that aha moment for the student that's there's a week long kind of boot camp class when you first get into incident management. Um, and about, you know, the, the third or, or maybe fourth day, hopefully a little earlier, because the first couple of days are PowerPoint. We try and make it good, <laughs> better. But uh, and then you're doing it. And so when you see the, oh, this is why I can't just go fill the forms out. This is why I need to have that conversation. This is why I shouldn't skip steps, because when you skip steps to your point, like that's when people get hurt. And, and if you look at um, after action reports from really internationally, like bad things that have happened, you know, shootings, attacks or or natural disasters and almost all of them communication I mentioned. Also, we didn't practice together as in a lot of them or we didn't train on this. Um, so my passion really became one uh, loving to see that aha moment, loving to share that me learning from it, me getting better from incident management and then, and then applying that to project management. And so I started in September 2018 with what was called Between the Slides just as a way to, to 
not have to travel to still get the word out. I love podcasts. Um, I love, it's just amazing to me. Like we're talking across the world, right? It's, it's outstanding. And so I said, you know what? I, I still want to teach this stuff. I think there's kind of a niche of incident management or project management. So I'm going to push it out there. Um, and then, you know, after about a year, and, and, you know, podcast kind of waxes when you're really into it. And then you're like, oh, man, it's a lot of work, but it's, it's really cool. So I, I kind of rebranded to people process progress. And as I went through all the iterations of what's catchy or what and, and then you get to, OK, well, what do I know makes a difference? What do I know works first? What's commercially cool? Um, and I know that people drive everything we do in the world, right? There's nature and all that, but, but it's all people. It's your relationships. It's it, that you do or don't establish the communication you do and don't have all that kind of stuff. Um, people also have process and, and that's one thing I found doing project management or incident management or really anything being a parent, you know, a husband is there's process like everywhere. It's just sometimes it's small and super simple. Like I get up, I exercise, I brush, you know, whatever. Or um, I do these prescribed steps to plan for like a presidential debate or, you know, something like that. There's all these different things. Um, and then, of course, the goal to me of the Internet, social media anything is how do we help each other make progress um and not to be altruistic but you know there, there's enough junk i'll say out there um that i think you know to take what i started off which was really focused on here's principles from specific um you know courses and then here's my two cents on this and that and then getting feedback from folks across the world or across the country and, and then going, you know, how can this get better? How can, can that do better? So to me, I really wanted to share um, people's stories. And so I shared um, stories from a, um, you know, third degree jujitsu black belt. I, I do jujitsu. And um, what was your story? How did you start your gym? How in the early days, you know, and then um, talking to, you know, other folks and in, in before of how did you go from being, um, you know, a, a new firefighter to the public information officer of your organization. So, and, and in there, there's always something, always the process that they used or specifically, okay, what's the process to special event plan for a sporting event or what's, you know, and then through that progress, um, having folks reach out like, man, that really helped when I planned for my next uh, county fair or, um, hey, you know, just sharing simple like office exercise things helped me get motivated today. So that's really the driver is just to put good stuff out there and share from, you know, pitfalls I've had or that I've learned from that I've done or, or successes. Um, and really, I think that's, it's just a great medium to do that. I think process becomes clear in hindsight. So when, when we're in the moment, we're thinking less of the process and more of the moment. And I think when we look at all our successes and failures in combination, it almost seems like a jigsaw puzzle falling in place, which is possibly why some pe people believe that there, there is a plan to, to life and you don't have necessary, you think you're making choices, but you're actually not. That's some people's belief system, um, right. interestingly. But, but it, it sort of makes sense if you're looking in that, you know, through that lens of the process is always something that you can review in hindsight and see that there was actually some method to what might have seemed madness at the time. So right. uh, now, interestingly, your reference to Between the Slides, which was your previous podcast, and came out of, from what I understand, your training and the concept that you have the slides up on the, on the you know, as you go through a course. Do you want to explain what the concept of Between the Slides actually means for the audience? Sure. Yeah. The, um, you know, I think we've all been in a, at a conference or a class or a meeting and, and people stand there and just read you the slides, um, which as a student and then as an instructor is, is a, to me, it's just, it's horrible. Right. It, you know, cause I know, I think I could just do that myself, just email me this and I'll read the slides and, you know, and I'll, I'll show yeah. up and, and then both as a student, you know, from not just incident, just ever, uh, to um, being an instructor uh, of really thinking, you know, again, one, what's a, a you know, neat sounding name, but the concept being the, the most value I had as a student to be able to ask people questions was on a break, the 10 minute break between sections or when you're at lunch with the instructor or when you're the instructor, you're at lunch with the students and people relax. They're not they're not fighting a pin like, you know, there's in some of these courses there's a pin, there's an outbreak in a jail, right? Go figure. So now we're on that times a million <laughs> across the world, but so they're not stressed out cause it's not their familiarity or whatever scenario. And so you get to learn about the person, 
you learn about why they're there. Were they voluntold to be there? Were they, you know, they they heard about this or, or they got to, you know, some folks in instant management, like I did, you start being the person with the clipboard that just signs people in and then you work way up to being in charge of the whole thing. Um, and so, you know, they happened to work one and they were like, man, I really want to get this training in there. And so over and over again, both for myself and then for students I had or, or folks, you know, that I worked with those pauses, you know, in a break in a meeting or at the conference is, is by far the most valuable piece where people can actually relate to each other. And we're not as much, you know, unless it's a really well, which I've, I've been to some of those two really well kind of set up Q and a type you know, slide decks and, and always trying to do that, um, that really when, you know, when the, when the clicking stops and you can have that conversation, uh, whether it's with the whole class or individually, that's really the value that any course conference meeting, et cetera, uh, provides. So that was, that was kind of the thought of it. It's, uh, something that I've seen before around the slide stuff is I interviewed, uh, an individual on the podcast and show, uh, people with a passion named Laurie Kelly. And he has a organization called Brain Friendly Training. And he had a projector. And when we all walked in the room, he had some weird and wonderful things happening, I must say. Um, in fact, if people are interested, or even yourself, go and look at the episode. It's really interesting. Um, he, he was a teacher and he realized how everyone learns differently and he shows different approaches and he didn't use a slide he didn't he didn't use uh, slides at all and he actually said that that's that's the lazy man's way of educating so yeah. so um and and it's exactly what you said he, he said because if if i put slides up everyone's focused on the slides they're not focused on me and you're right you can send those slides out to them anytime and they can read them in their own time and a lot of people do sit there thinking i'm not um i could read that at home or they sit there still like writing exactly what's up on the slide which means then they don't give attention to to the actual instructor so what he often did actually people can go up and have a look is he um basically was writing on paper and then he'd stick it up around the walls and he'd just say when you're ready he'd let people get up and walk around during the the course and uh he'd literally let you just take a photo with your mobile phone he said that's a tool you can use and that got people up around and moving and he had all these different methodologies to keep people engaged in the learning process um so the slide thing to hear you talk about when your learning happened between the slide is is right. actually you know just springs to mind of that interview and that individual and uh, there's a lot of methodologies there that absolutely help anyone not just from an education point of view like like someone like yourself who's instructing people but also for people to understand how they learn and how they can actually use things like symbols and colors and, and you know, different approaches to actually learn as well to help them engage in the learning process. Because most environments are just what you described there, which is everyone just sitting in a room looking at one instructor and, um, right. and the learning happens in different ways. So for you to identify that, uh, that's, that's pretty good. So who are the some of the you mentioned the jujitsu and things like that in your podcast who are some of the people that you've had as guests to date and topics that you've covered to give us an idea of what you're, you're covering there uh one was um andrew smith so he was a co-founder of uh, revolution brazilian jiu-jitsu in richmond where where i started um and hopefully to set up the head instructor where i where i'm now so talk to him most recently on people process progress um on between the slides i actually started with my friends and colleagues um you know reach out to hey what do you think about this episode and hey do you want to be on in the first interview i ever did um, was, and I don't think it's unique in the U S but it was, um, a buddy of mine who was a police captain of 20 plus years and law enforcement resistance to embracing the incident command system. So the system that brings us all together, uh, and it was from him. So, and he was, a, which is great. Um, a, you know, a, a police captain. And so really got into incident management and it has a lot of the hallmarks you mentioned. So it, and you know, the trainings and the practice and stuff, we use big sticky notes on the wall and all that kind of, so it's really interactive. And he, he took it not and this, I think speaks to people's perceptions on, Oh, well, we can only use this one thing and this big stuff. Um, so he took the whole, which is a pretty big system and said, well, wait a minute, when I go to a call, that's like a homicide or a break in or whatever, we can spin up the same kind of things we talked about. And so he was the first one I talked to a good friend of mine. And, um, 
really sharing uh, a lot of not just law enforcement, but any industry that holds on to their we've always done it this way thing, mm. or we've always done an operations order, so we don't need all those forms, uh, was the perception that they had not knowing the process that is behind all of those. It's, you know, they don't show up magically. So um, talk to him about that and a couple other buddies that came up through the fire service. Um, another uh, gentleman, uh, Ben Rogers, who uh, has the, the bottom line podcast actually too, but he was our realtor. Um, but, um, you know, inspired. And again, I, w- I wish it was people process because he was a great example of, hey, we met you because you helped us sell our house. And then we became friends. And his story is he started exercising a lot, got healthy, um, survived a house fire when he was younger. Like great story, right, in his process. And now he's he's a successful um, realtor and a coach and things like that. So uh, kind of a mix of, of people like that and talk to another uh, buddy who's a firefighter and does like suicide support for first responders. Um, so pretty, you know, public safety or, or – um, uh, incident management heavy, but not completely. Um, and, and really trying to kind of branch out and, and just expand that. So it really fits, you know, and, and, and part of that's me, you know, the, the time of, Hey, set everything up and get it scheduled and do this kind of that. So, um, it, it's been a mix, but really starting with kind of what I was most familiar with and people I was most familiar with, uh, and then branching out to, to some other folks. It's interesting with emergencies that they're, they're flowing situations where any plan, sense of planning may actually not work if you have that fixed mindset around this is how we always did it. So I'm sure multiple times you see that in an emergency situation. So how do you actually address that situation when it does occur, when you've got a number of people and or experts saying this is how we've always done it? Well, sometimes you have to be very political and soft-handed, uh, depending on the position you're in. You know, if, if say, when I was a, a, an EMS captain, um, you know, I, which is good uh, because of my leadership, uh, and then, you know, working with other folks, was fortunate to be in a position where I could influence because um, it kind of earned my spot, but more so I developed the relationships. And um, there's no getting around in public safety that what's on your collar matters when you meet someone right so working through that kind of but really then making it the human connection uh so sometimes having to do the political game and and do that and then sometimes just being being frank and 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 this uh again this this sparked it's it's no mystery or or no dig it just happened to be with with law enforcement that they do this operations order it's very paramilitary right that's you know where it comes from the background and so it's we've done this but it's good for you but it's not good for any of your other partners you know meaning cool, that's great plan for law enforcement, but it doesn't help fire and it doesn't help EMS and it doesn't help dispatch and anybody else um, if you do it that way. And there's plenty of great examples of folks that don't do that. And so, you know, one time I had that, I had to have a very frank discussion saying, and this is when I was coordinating like EMS task forces to stand by, to go in and grab people and get them out. And um, to say, look, if, if you're, cause it, cause people would say, uh, and this person in particular, I, I don't care about all those forms and it's just this and, and not again, not understanding. No, it's the conversations we have and we know we're on the same radio, cha- radio channels and we, you know, all the stuff that's important of saying, look, if your person gets hit in the head with a brick, my people can't get to you because we have no idea where they are. Right. So sometimes you have to put it in a tangible context that matters to that person. Um, hopefully before then they could have seen the process and been in the meetings and went, Oh yeah. Um, but I've gone out of meetings that was the day before and folks are looking at their radio, turning the channel going, well, I guess we'll use this channel, which is a nightmare, right? Because ahead of time you need to know on a sunny day, here's our channel. When it gets a little bit worse, we might move some folks when one of our people go down, right? You don't have time to sit there. And I mentioned there's after actions from big events like, you know, Las Vegas or other stuff, um, and again, it's different practicing it than really responding and being able to do it and, and that kind of stuff. And I, and I get it, but you can see the same message. And so I've had to just been straightforward with folks, uh, sometimes to a fault, sometimes have been a little, a little too straightforward, but you know, for the instances where it's a civil unrest you're planning for, where it could go completely sideways, like things have some folks only understand that, that real direct approach. And then, you know, other times when you have time, when it's a planned event, you just, you know, build a good relationship and bring people on board and put them in positions where they have authority or they're part of the team there um, so they can learn, but also help make decisions. You know, it's just just good kind of team building and confidence building, because I, I found most folks 
don't know what they don't know and, and they're nervous about that. So that's a lot of why they put the wall up and they fall back on what is a good practice for them that they've done for 20 years. Um, but not understanding, wow, oh, you can get us snacks and water also, not just for police and fire, not just for your patch. Um, and so when you when you provide value for other partners, that also makes a huge difference. And and that, that we've 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 done that before where it's really just let us get you food and, and help do logistics for that. Right. And you kind of chip away and then they realize, oh, this is part of a much bigger process. Uh, same thing with the project. You know, if it was the private sector or something else, it, it, very similar parallels. Hmm. You're currently working in a health environment in a logistical more. I guess it's logistical IT support role or many project management role. What are you seeing on the ground right now with the current situation, given that most of the people in that medical, and it's an academic environment, but they're still involved in what's going on because it is a medical facility? Yeah, um, very, you know, similar to probably what almost every other healthcare organization is seeing as far as surge capacity for bed space and staffing and how do we minimize use of personal protective equipment but still maintain contact with the patient the providers a consultant that's not even in the hospital um and a huge resurgence of telehealth telemedicine how do we implement that for folks in the hospital for folks outside the hospital um and then you know that's primarily day-to-day. So I'm I'm an IT project manager. So usually it's, Hey, we have a new vital signs device that does this or that. Let's integrate it with our electronic health record. Make sure we hand it off. Good. It works cool. So I'm actually finding I'm putting half of my incident command system hat on because I'm actually using processes and forms directly from that. And I just kind of change it and sneak it in there. Um, But it helps, you know, not just to, to do it. And then also kind of traditional project management, you know, communications and updates and things like that, but um, really focused on the tactical, uh, and you're right, I'm really doing a lot of logistical stuff and just helping close communication gaps and, um, you know, let's get these devices so we can, um, you know, and really finding with, which is amazing, these things that folks look at all the time, these smartphones are a huge enabler. If you think about it, if you put a phone and leave them in rooms where there's patients that, you know, for, and there's ways to do it, either a holder or the patient holds it, and I'm outside the phone and I can FaceTime you or Zoom you or something else, I don't have to wear any PPE uh, short of whatever zone of the hospital you're in because there's still, you know, kind of hot and cold and warm zone. But it's a great multiplier and the quality of the video is awesome. Um, and a lot of the carriers, I think, are, you know, have bumped up their signal because I, I would love to see the graphs of the spike of, activity and, and, you know, things like that. So really focus on, on enabling that and then just trying to help kind of overall communication and organization, stuff like that. Hmm. The interesting thing around what's happening right now is technology has been used and applied as tools in so many different ways and people are looking at the opportunity to identify how things may be used. So that's an interesting use of the mobile phone there given, you know, you can't have that close interaction with someone that may be infected or is infected. Um, interestingly, I sold on dropshipping um, ox- oximeters, uh, the the ones that go oh, right. on uh, fingers last year and I, I see that they're, they're in short supply right now but one of the things that people are using they connect to the mobile phones via bluetooth some of them and they actually record the oxygen levels for the doctors and they can check in on the oxygen level um in in the app because uh, it gets emailed to them so i'm not sure if the hospital's using those but they're i think they're thin on the ground at the moment but the idea is, is because they're monitoring monitoring the oxygen levels that it's helping um them assess the patient the the patient's level of of you know or where they're at i suppose is the the way to put it so even that technology where they used to put people on the machines is is actually being used to um, measure their oxygen levels which is so important given it's a respiratory you know disease Um, so that's that's certainly working there in emergency situations that Obviously, a lot of situations, they only go for a short period of time and they, they're emergency. You get in, you get out, you get the job done. But in a situation like this, where we're talking potentially months, if it, hopefully not years, but certainly months, how do you maintain morale in, in an environment where you've got multiple emergency services and personnel where they're seeing from a day-to-day basis they're in on the ground working in crisis mode 
Um, it, it's tough. And, and for now, you know, honestly, for me, being kind of a far uh, helping coordinate, um, but, you know, connected and, and talking with some of the folks that are on the ground, it's it's very hard. It's exhausting. Uh, it's morally demoralizing. And, you know, from the standpoint of everyone that I know that's in public safety or public health or healthcare, you want to you want to save everyone. You want to do the best that you can. You want to help them have all the best conversations and, you know, and something this big, you you can't. And and so the, the good thing I'm seeing is a lot of, you know, whether it's uh, employee assistance program or other counseling programs that are available, mental health, um, stress management um, is very helpful. Um, talking to each other, you know, I we get together, uh, friends and I, there was an incident management teams with in public safety. And, you know, when you talk with folks that have gone through similar experiences and you can just talk it out, um, it helps tremendously. Um, you know, letting yourself not, and this was a big thing in public safety and military too, that, that unfortunately because of the wars, but because of those, that it's less stigma to, there's nothing wrong if you're, if you've, you know, so upset and you're crying, there's nothing wrong to get mad. There's, there's just nothing wrong with it, but bottling up, bottling it up is, you know, a problem. And so, you know, overall morale is tough, but then, you know, for the teams I'm on, for my friends that I talk to, it's just, just lift each other up. Sometimes you're the one that's up and you're helping everybody else. And sometimes you're the one that's down and they're helping you, um, you know, particularly for like me, I have three sons. Uh, my wife's working from home where school is out, but still curriculum, which, which is a whole nother podcast, you know, a whole nother thing like that. But, um, so that, you know, is tough when, when we're all busy and I'm working healthcare and my wife's working to help keep the software company going and all of that. And it's, you know, letting, giving yourself time, I think to go step outside, take a breath, you know, get in a routine and, this was this is something I think that's really important that has helped me and I think other folks is, you know, still get up like you're going to work, still get ready, still do your exercise, still do whatever, um, you know, work somewhere, make it quiet. So I think that helps with with managing the stress, um, you know, but healthcare, public safety in particular are just hurting because of the, you know, as much as, uh, you know, I know I was fortunate to work with great folks and do some great work. You know, you can only scale up for pretend or even the real stuff you do so much to something this magnitude. And then you're going to run out of people. You're going to run out of supplies. You're going to run out of space. Um, but I think it's, you know, helping folks be okay with that. Like, Hey, this, this good solution is great. Cause you know, in, in a mentor I had, um, doctor I used to work for, uh, you know, perfect is the enemy of good sometimes was a great analogy he gave me when I'd sit there and try and get this right and get it right. And he's like, Hey, like that's a good solution. And so I think, you know, we're doing a lot of that now and short of some huge safety violation or, you know, something like that is just do the best you can. Cause we're in crisis mode until, you know, the, the peak's gone and, you know, everything starts to get kind of better. So I think folks are just working through it by again, you know, ebb and flow when you're up, help others. And when you're, you're down, you know, ask for help or just take time to let your emotions out, go for a walk, that kind of stuff. So is that something you consider in an org chart is having some sort of system of support as well for those that are on the ground working um, hands on in, in a crisis or emergency? Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, the, the other hat I used to wear uh, on the incident management team was medical unit leader. And so that was the medical person for us. Right. And it's medical focus because the, the kind of history of the incident command system is it came from the big wildfires out west. And so I would have to show up in a forest and set up like an EMS system kind of thing. But in the all hazards world or just the day to day kind of in a city or a county world. Um, we would still do that. And so part of that is, are you looking at how people are? Are you both health wise doing screenings, that kind of stuff in a, in a hospital healthcare system or like, um, friends of mine are part of a regional effort. So multiple localities, cities or counties together. Um, do you have mental health services there to, to look after folks or give them a number? And they do. Um, and then sharing the, I mentioned employee assistance programs, you know, which has the counseling available or sharing regional first responder networks. And there's there's a, a bunch of those things uh, online and, and and sharing that. But but you definitely should focus on not just kind of the tactical stuff and not just, you know, the the high speed things. But, OK, what about your person? You know, this was the first time they saw someone deceased or this was the 50th. You know, there's different different, you know, stresses there. And so how are you going to manage them? And for you know, any special event you plan or even critical incident you go to that debrief that looking at your folks should always, always be included in it. In, interestingly, time period like this, you mentioned, you know, people and how they react to seeing one body and how they may react to, after seeing um, 50, which 
sent me off on a little bit of a tangent to an interview that I just did with an undertaker. He told me how he first was when he was dealing with corpses. And then when you said your first dealing is different to your 50th, and I'm thinking, my mind went to wonder how many he's worked with and how he thinks about them after time. One of the things I was talking about buddies about um, was a big public health preparedness thing is mass fatality management. Yeah. And so it's, it's also one of those things that nobody wants to talk about till you have to. In a crisis like now where health is also an issue and talking public health in general um, we're seeing that people aren't being able to be given their traditional burials that they're having to dig like trenches in New York and places like that to place people um, because health is becoming a bigger issue around those so do you want to talk about that whole concept of when it gets to that point where you know we've had that much loss of life Sure. There's, um, I guess, a couple kind of main streams there typically, and, and there's a, a whole list, at least under the CDC, that, that my state health department kind of looked to for guide, and there's um, crisis standards of care. So that's when you get to a point where it's we don't have enough people and stuff, so we have to do the greatest good for the greatest number. And, and that's probably the front end of what we're talking about where, okay, and, and you see a lot of this now. So, hey, if you think you have it, stay home for 14 days is because we don't want every single person coming to the emergency room or to the hospital or whatever clinic because you just you you can't no clinic nowhere on earth we can't handle that Um, so part of it is that the other part the extreme of that crisis standards of care is we have three breathing tubes left and five people need them you know that's a whole that and if you think about that's a heavy psychological thing just right now to talk about let alone actually planning for that or having to do it and so that you know that's a whole um a whole big thing and, and there's some of that with i think ventilators is probably the best example that you see the shortages and who gets one and who doesn't and who can we treat without it and, and that's our that's a crisis standard of care decision and discussion and then the you know the the poor outcome of that is what what you just mentioned so now this mass fatality management which which has always been kind of a hot potato um because one it's hard to imagine things would get that bad that the um, medical examiner or the morgue is filled, the funeral homes are filled, the hospitals filled, uh, there's no space. Um, but it's something that, that, you know, we plan for and that, you know, the logistics of that is a whole different thing to the point of, you know, if you think about it, um, you know, the practical aspect of thinking, what are we going to do with people's remains? And there's all the different factors of legal custody of it, uh, religious rights, depending on what their beliefs are of storage of the body right and so you know a practical just as an example you know and and having gone through some of this planning with emergency management and public safety colleagues of how can we store if there was a mass fatality of like 20 people and they have these there's a thing in the hospital and you may have seen it it's a cooling blanket it's like this plastic blanket cool stuff goes through and usually it's because i overheated or something well they have a concept of those that's a small trailer but it's made for body storage um, but it doesn't, it holds like six to 10. Maybe I'm sure they have some that are bigger. When you talk big scale, you're talking like refrigerated semi truck, right? Is kind of the probably movie is the best, you know, like some contagion mm. movie or something like that. And so, um, when you think about the practical planning of it, if you know what, who uses a lot of refrigeration trucks is like fruit vendors, right? Or food. But if, if they know that you had to use that to store bodies, now you own that truck. Right. Because because both the public and, and the company probably doesn't want it back. And so when you think about planning, so then, you know, going, OK, well, what else could we use? Well, there's they also use that for seedlings, like for plants. Right. And so thinking, oh, well, that could be an option and, and getting down to the level of working out partnerships with those companies to say, OK, if we get to this point, how can we call you to help us to set it up wherever you've planned for it? Um, is that mass fatality you know, management and partnering? We did partner with our funeral directors who are that's their expertise. You know, undertaker mm-hmm. funeral directors is how do you appropriately with respect and religious rights and, all, and legal custody manage care of a human being, let alone tens, twenties, hundreds of them. And then how can you, and, and, you know, with limited capacity. So the experts, you know, in that mass fatality planning are folks that deal with fatalities all the time. And, and including for us, it's the office of the chief medical examiner, you know, the folks that do the investigation, how did this person die? And it's usually from an unnatural kind of cause, but they're also experts. So bringing those people to the table should help drive your planning. And then 
people that are really good at logistics and getting stuff. And the example we always used in, in some of the, you know, short courses we would teach folks is like Radar O'Reilly from the show MASH. He could get everything, like anything you needed. And so if you have really good logistics folks, that kind of seedling truck idea or partnerships, you know, thinking outside the box uh, really can make a difference because, I mean, like you mentioned, seeing either the term mass grave or seeing on the news, you know, what looks like that is just it's very hard to digest and, and it kind of, you know, beckons back to kind of wartime where there are bombs dropping and there are, you know, things like that. And, and so, but yeah, getting into the practical elements of those, you, you have to dig and you have to get that, that on paper. So if someone years down the road picks it up and it's actionable though, it's, Hey, if you get to these levels, call these numbers and work with those folks. Hmm. The media you just touched on when we see those things in the media, hmm. Um, right. how big a role given you brief media and they tend to report as they see fit, <laughs> especially in the U S where it is a free press and it's, and it's something that's held in high regard. Usually <laughs> it's only as good as like anything people, um, what is it? People process progress. Um, it's only as good as the people that are involved and, and where they come from, I suppose, and, and what they're, everyone has an agenda. So I, I have a journalism background and I chose not to do newspapers for a reason. I, I like radio, but I chose not to do newspapers for a reason. Um, meaning because the gatekeepers, the owners are the gatekeepers of the message. So that's not true journalism to me. So regardless of this is my opinion now, regardless sure. of which organization someone reports for, they are employed and that makes an issue. So I like the democratization of, of broadcasting in podcasting because it actually gives people more of a voice and not beholden to anyone. So there, I said my piece, I'm allowed to say that because I'm not being paid. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, right. uh, but yeah, so let's talk about the things that you not can't necessarily control in that that you may seem as important. So media is one of them right now. We can see your president gets a lot of heat for how he's being reported. And he gives a lot of heat for how he's being reported. But how hard it is, is it in a crisis to um, try and have some form of narrative that is actually not uh, a grey, like a, a grey area as opposed to black and white? Because people are looking for black and white in a crisis. When it becomes grey, misinformation and the correct information become hard to discern. Um, so how, how does that from a you know, crisis management point um, become part of your organisational planning? Um, it's huge between... Uh, and there's two key kind of in a typical incident command system kind of structure. There's the public information officer. So um, often, which is great, they were in journalism or studied it or had some capacity. Some came up and trained maybe in their department. They were like, you know, the police department's PIO as a positional. But, but a lot of them were experts in their field like you. So how do you tell a story? How do you, you know, put things together? And so we leveraged, we leveraged that. And that public information officer's job for the entire incident management team or command system or project uh if it if it's media but particularly the public information officer is to let us know on the team here's how we're going to put messages out so it's one message one voice um nothing no one talks to the media or here's some general statements very similar you know to probably what we're seeing but um, everything goes through me if the media calls you let me know what channel they're from what all that kind of stuff so it's a person everyone knows is the point for any messages going out or coordinating briefings, putting together what we call the joint information system, which is all the PIOs from various organizations. Um, if we were on a, you know, not in a pandemic, but where we had to be co-located, let's say there was like a stadium collapse, something big, and it, there wasn't a pandemic, they would coordinate a joint information center. So just a place for everyone to show up and do briefings and, um, and then also brief, you know, the incident commander and the example you used is the president, right? Our commander in chief. So, um, briefing them and, and then, you know, the unknown is, are they going to go on or off script, which, which is, you know, is, is the question. And then having similarly, when we do briefings to the troops, the operations briefing, which is, you know, we do all this process, we put it together and then we need to tell the people we're going to send out there to do things. Um, whether it's our people initially, that's our primary focus that, um, we're sharing that message with them effectively. And then also how we tell them the public, um, like if there's a big missing persons, you know, Hey, you'll see all these people and here's why. And, those kind of things. Um, and then there's kind of an internal a position called the liaison officer and their job is how is everybody playing together in the sandbox? Do we have the contacts for all the, all the 
partner organizations, and that's just as important. So rumor control within the team, messages within the team, contacts within the team, or organizations or departments um, or project team members and the public information officer, how we push in messages out, how we coordinating with the media. So they're, they're critical roles, and, and we see that now in, in standard special event planning or, or incident uh, responses. There's, there's definitely a rumor control um, you know, aspect of that, uh, standardizing messages, um, putting those together. So it's, it's critically important. And, you know, now what I've told folks and what I look at always is, you know, for us, the, the CDC, as far as information is, is it right. And so that's for me being in the U S and, and the kind of programs I was under who we always went to. And I know there's a lot of information with, with the WHO, um, for us, that's just what I went to. And, you know, it, it's, it's near real time and, and that was it. So, also having a source that you trust um and you know if it was a different circumstance what's the definitive authority on x you know and so that's what we're going to use and so everybody's data points are the same and um you know that ties into a good message that's legitimate that's not uh and i've had this from from family and friends my brother's cousin's sister works at the pentagon and they said this is going to happen and it's marshall you know all the stuff and you're going uh, okay let's let's vet that and and you know i think um, some principles of personal preparedness is to like have a plan, whether it's for a fire or a pandemic or something like that, put a kit together, like food that'll last. And, and that's one thing, you know, so the message that we're pushing out to folks um, that I'm seeing, we can probably improve on because, you know, you see it in the stores, the whole toilet paper thing, but, uh, and then people buying perishable like chicken breasts and ground beef. And so we've also seen um, hurricanes are still happening or tornadoes or earthquakes or whatever. And they don't care about the pandemic. So all that chicken you just bought, now you don't have power. Now it's going to go bad versus some, you know, um, shelf-stable food like cans of tuna or they have whole meal, you know, those kind of things. So that public information messaging too, which we do see a lot of, of the distancing and wear a mask or don't wear a mask, gloves. And, and so that's a huge aspect too. And even that has variability depending on probably what channel you're watching and, you know, and, and where you're watching and who's given the message. And so um, – you know, for that, that's another big, big aspect of those. But, but another key component of preparedness is stay informed. So choose your sources wisely, get them from your emergency services or emergency management organization that's in your area or public health. Yeah. So it's interesting that it must be tough for you to be watching some things in this crisis and how it's being managed right now. Not that you're correct, but it's because you're coming from a perspective where you feel you can help. And you're probably looking at things going, gee, why have they done that? Or, But we're talking about hindsight. So when this is all said and done, how important is it to review the whole process of, of everything that's occurred here to try and learn from it and improve those, you know, processes so that down the in the future we, we progress when these things occur? I think it's it's critical and, and just put a, you know, kind of one of the spur of the moment, hey, let me give some scoop on how you do an after action or, or lessons learned on the fly. And I think um, we now should be collecting these, you know, jotting down notes daily or weekly so that in a month, two months, three months, we're not trying to recall, you know, from the how do we do this one task or two tasks in this either healthcare facility or out in the street or wherever to how do we do this whole thing better? Um, I think it's, you know, there's I'll probably butcher the quote, but, you know, if we ignore history, we're doomed to repeat it kind of thing. Um, and, and again, we see that. So, you know, after 9-11, um, um, after Katrina, at least in the U.S., you know, we looked at, OK, let's do better warning and OK, let's get more hurricane stuff and then shootings. Let's get more response gear and then this i would imagine there'll be a surge of masks and gowns and stocking up and and i've always been a you know way before if you've partnered if you've done some of the things we've talked about you already kind of can project hey maybe let's get a couple extra of these but not everything um and so i think it folks won't we won't as a whole a whole planet let alone your organization or anyone benefit or actually get better if we're not objective with ourselves and our organizations on doing good after action reports. So, you know, from the, the most basic of get your teams together and say, give me three areas for improvement each, give me three strengths. Let's put all those together. Let's write a comprehensive, you know, no nonsense kind of thing. And we should be honest in, you know what, we probably could have practiced this process better, or we should have planned that out more, or, you know, there's no getting around when, 
I think humans in general, if something bad's not happening or this scenario hasn't played out, we kind of brush it aside. And then if it's part of a checklist we're supposed to do, we go, yeah, cool. Yeah, we did that. But now we're seeing, oh, man, we we really have to do that. So particularly in the area of continuity operations, which is about how do we have two or three, four people deep in one position to rotate them out or, you know, because now we mentioned morale earlier, you, you, you can only work you know, going, going, going 14, 15 hour days for not that long before you're just, you're not helpful. And, and then recognizing, okay, how do we make that better? So I hope, I hope that, you know, folks are going to do that, um, and put those together, but I imagine there'll be some variability. Cause again, you, you see it after every kind of big thing, uh, some, it, it gets a lot of spotlight and then it falls away. And so I, I hope we don't do that. I hope folks really take it to heart and, and make a big difference because it's a lot of this i think my two cents and, and like you mentioned it's kind of my two cents based on my background i think we, we could do a lot of things that don't even involve buying a lot of stuff or spending a lot of money it's really maybe some training and just getting together and talking through things or practicing um, which is it's not hard the obstacle there is, is really us one thing that I think this is relevant. It, it seems we're talking about the crisis, but this whole concept of, of process and crisis management is relevant to individuals' daily lives and businesses as well. So businesses, you, you know, should have things in place for when things aren't going well within their organisations. Individuals right now experiencing adversity, you, you said that there should be crisis kits and things like that, that you know where they should be considering what they're buying and and things like that so that if something happens they they've mitigated against it so more more or less a pre-mortem as opposed to a post-mortem and i i just wondering what advice would you be giving to individuals right now around how they can better organize their lives to mitigate against some of the potential things that may not yet be seen um i think so fortunately if kind of like those foundational four for personal preparedness is is kind of that gap that i'm that i'm seeing or that message is there it exists a lot of places but maybe that's something we haven't packaged and pushed out well enough across the world really um and in the u.s for sure is um the first thing is have a plan whether it's for fire whether it's a bad guy in your house whether it's oh there's a pandemic or the biggest scenario that's used in these cases is like there's a hurricane and you lose power for a week and the guidance has typically been have enough food and water and other stuff for like three days which we are way beyond obviously and the good thing is though we're not globally like without power and you know the whole neighborhood devastated so that's kind of the, the extreme but is to have a plan from the simplest thing to the most uh, complex like this. Uh, and there's a lot of good templates out there. And if folks just Google, um, you know, we have like ready.gov, there's probably similar, you know, uh, national or state level things for their emergency management is look up the templates they have for emergency personal preparedness plans. Um, the second thing is, is make a kit. And that is have flashlights, not candles, um, have non-perishable or shelf-stable food. And, and that's the food, you know, that's like the noodles that you can open and eat, or you could microwave and it's tasty, you know, a little better, but in a pinch, you could eat it, right? Or tuna or something like that. Um, your medications, that's a big one that we're seeing now too. So if you can't get to your doctor and, and, for storms, you can see a hurricane coming. Uh, now there's debate on whether everyone saw this coming or not to go to go down that road, but a storm is on a map. And, you know, so that's the example that's typically used is, okay, we're two weeks out from hurricane, whatever, going to hit us really hard. Call your doctor, get two extra weeks of meds if you can. And there's, you know, things like that. And um, practically have extra water, not just for the adults. If you have babies, have extra water and formula and diapers. So just think practically in your kit, what would you need to sustain yourself um, at your place with no help? And, and I think that's, that's, you know, also depending on probably where you live um, in the world, let alone your state, your country, et cetera, of the, the perception of, well, if something happens, someone will just come help me versus I need to be able to do this myself. And we're certainly seeing that, right, because there's not capacity when everyone has problems to help everyone. Um, and so if you can um, – you know, have water, have food, have the necessities you need to keep your health up. Um, if you're staying in that routine, then then your kit kind of should include those vital things, phone chargers, extra batteries, those kind of things. Um, and then stay informed is like what we talked about before. So use trusted, sure, enjoy 
you know, all the, all the various things on social media, whether, you know, that's accurate or not, but, but kind of learn and find your way, get different viewpoints on what's happening, find out who the authority is, um, have a radio, like old school radio with batteries or a wind up one that's a radio and, and flashlight so you can hear, um, you know, hey, this is this, you know, for now, probably the equivalent is, hey, we're doing COVID testing at this time at this place. And, you know, but but the radio would be a tornado warning, you know, something like that. It's very storm based, this concept, but it works for pandemics, too. The thing is, most folks can't stock up their own ventilator and their own suits and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then the fourth one of those that, that is, you know, kind of optional, so to speak, is to get involved, right? So if you if you are prepared, if you've got a plan for folks, if you're inclined when, you know, now's probably a hard time to do it, but there's volunteer organizations and we have uh, the Medical Reserve Corps, which is something we have and, and community emergency response teams and all these different, you know, whether it's medical based or not, of where you can help your community, you can get extra training. Um, and that just makes you even more prepared personally, let alone you can be part of, you know, part of the community. And I've, you know, got about six and a half years as a volunteer firefighter and um, it, it's invaluable experience. Plus you get to meet people from all walks of life. You know, you get the invaluable experience of if a disaster or an emergency happens to you and you've kind of been in those situations before, whether it's health or public safety or something else, then it, then it, it, it helps you get used to it. But so, you know, having a plan, making that kit uh, with practical, you know, stuff in it, um, staying informed and getting involved if you choose is probably personally the, the, the message I think probably needs to be resounded, you know, for sure now and, and afterwards. And it's, and it's not too late to, to put some of that stuff together now. Thanks for your time, Kevin Pennell. And uh, if people are interested, make sure you check out the People Process Progress podcast and uh, you'll get more great advice um, on these sorts of uh, situations. So really appreciate your time today. Absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, good to speak with you and, and learn more about you and hear more about people with passion. Thanks, mate. I hope you liked this episode. If you did, please give it a thumbs up and feel free to comment. If you haven't yet subscribed, hit the subscribe button and the notification bell to be advised of new interviews when they're uploaded. I hope you join us again sometime. Catch you later.